condemned. Let's turn to the Word of God, Romans chapter 1, just three verses this morning. Romans chapter 1, under the heading, it's the gospel, you receive it or die. Romans 1, 16 through 18. The Apostle Paul, writing, said these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is the word of God. The gospel, receive it or die. Oh, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the epistle to the Romans is often referred to as the greatest book in the Bible. It's certainly the richest book in the Bible. And sometimes it's considered the most important book in the Bible. And you wonder why that is the case. Well, because it clearly summarizes the gospel showing man, first of all, his sin, second, how he's saved from his sin, and third, how he is to serve God once he has been saved from his sin. In short, the book of Romans, or the letter to the Romans, covers the whole spectrum of human existence and purpose. Now, after explaining the first uh, 15 verses of, the, of this uh, letter, he explained the gospel was the only way of salvation for the world from Adam and Eve. The question then comes, how do you respond to the gospel? How do you respond to the gospel? And our headings reflect the answers that we get in our society. One, you as a call, you must embrace the gospel. But the first response that some have is, if you embrace the gospel, it will save you. And others, if you don't embrace the gospel, it will condemn you. So this is what God expects. One, that you embrace the gospel and be saved. But if you don't embrace it, you will be condemned. Those are our headings. Our goals are that you will receive, rejoice in, and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. So good can come to man and glory to the Savior. First, you must embrace the gospel. The Apostle Paul declared that he was not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why does he say that? Well, it looked when Jesus was crucified, when he was put on the cross by the Jews and the Romans, that he was somehow defeated. Here is this grown man who claimed to be the son of God who had all these people following him, who did all these miracles. Suddenly he, there he is, crucified, naked, embarrassed, beaten, spat upon. That didn't look like a success for a leader. After all, a leader is known as someone who's dressed in fancy clothing and driving in nice cars and looking impressive. Not here. Their master was hanging on a tree. 
not much of a picture of a conqueror. It was kind of embarrassing. And that's why the Apostle Paul starts off, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But then he explained why he wasn't ashamed of the gospel, why he wasn't afraid of the one who came to live and die for him. He said it brought salvation, for in it is the power of God to salvation. It might look embarrassing. He didn't look particularly glamorous there, and yet that was the means. That was the dirty work that needed to be done so that you would be saved. That was the dung around the tree that was sentenced to be destroyed that gave it life again. Now, a good way to understand this is not too many years ago when uh, COVID hit and it was time for new medicines. And in the West, we mocked the medicines that were being used in the East particularly places like India where COVID hit very hard. But pretty soon they decided they were going to use their medicines. And in the West, because their medicine wasn't, medicines weren't expensive, we mocked them. But they went to the doctor, they got their medicines. They went home, they got better, life was going on as normal. And when we were locked in our homes and police were coming to check who was visiting you, 110,000 were gathered in a stadium in New Delhi watching cricket matches. It looked kind of foolish to us. We mocked them for that. And yet that was the means by which they lived. And so it is with the gospel. It kind of looks strange. Why do you need somebody to do things for you? Are you that dependent? Yeah. That foolish gospel was what saved man from his miserable condition. That embarrassing looking leader was a means of life. The gospel brought salvation. Yes, it looked weak at the cross, but it wasn't. But it wasn't just for the Jews. You see, the apostle Paul goes on. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's the statement. Then he proves why it's the power of God to salvation. And then it proves who will get it to everyone who believes. He proclaimed everyone from every language, culture, nation who received the gospel would live by the gospel. How could he be ashamed of it? This was bringing life-giving message to those who were hopeless. Yes, it started with the Jews. Jesus said so with the woman at the well. He said in John 4, 22, You worship what do you, what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. It started there. And yet, throughout the scriptures, the Bible says many, many times. Genesis 18, 18. Genesis 22, 18. Genesis 26, 4. He says, In you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. From Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The wild olive branches were grafted into the true olive tree. By the way, and this is something that's very popular now because of the problems in, in Palestine. Let's remember the olive tree is Jesus. The branches are for Jews and Gentiles. But the olive tree is not Israel. Jesus is the foundation and we are grafted in to that olive tree. 
And in fact, even in the days of Isaiah, we learn that more will be the children of the barren woman than children of the married woman. More will be the children of the, the Gentiles than children of the Jews. You read Psalm 110. The Lord will reign till all his enemies become his footstool. Zechariah speaks of all the nations running to Jesus, begging for forgiveness. So the hope was and the plan was that all who receive this gospel from all different parts of the world will be brought into the family of God. Inclusion of Gentiles was always part of God's plan. The Jews were not unique. In fact, as Apostle Paul says in chapter 4, I believe, of Romans, he said that the Abraham was not a Jew. In, in a stunning way, he said, he wasn't a Jew. And yet, he, had, he was justified. Salvation by grace through faith. In a way, the first one that we call our father was not a Jewish person. He was from Mesopotamia, from Iraq. Not Israel. So this gospel was always intended for everyone all over the world. The Lord simply had to start someplace. And if you look at the map, you will see Israel was probably the perfect place situated for the spread of the kingdom. It was more of a geographic thing. Because they were not loving God. Abraham was not a child of God. He was probably a fire-worshipping pagan from Ur of the Chaldees, Mesopotamia. And this is the gospel, that foolish gospel, the means by which he's saved. Now let's learn a few things here. I have four lessons for you. First of all, the world might try to make you ashamed of the gospel. Make you ashamed of being a Christian for trusting in someone else for your salvation. After all, it's all about me. It's independence. If it's got to be, it's up to me. Robert Schuller used to say, falsely deceiving millions. But know the peace that you have with God now and for eternity. And embrace the gospel that brought you peace. Let the world mock you. But you know what you have. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is what? It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So let the world mock you. Second, proclaim the gospel of peace. Don't hide it. This is what will bring praise to the Savior and salvation to those who are lost. You know, preachers, one of the old quotes, one of the ways they describe preaching, it said it must be done promiscuously. We use that word differently today in terms of sexual promiscuity, but it's saying this is the gospel that must be proclaimed everywhere to everyone. The world needs to hear it. Do it and support those who are doing it. Third, there have been many attempts to bring good news to man. But all of these things have turned out to be failures and therefore brought shame to those who embraced it. One that was proclaimed by a famous Jew named Karl Marx. He promised that if you follow his ideals, things will get better. 27 times it was tried and 27 times it failed. Because it doesn't fix the problem of man. And in fact it's resulted in the slaughter of millions of people. Think of what's happening. 50 to 60 million people dying in, in China. Look at what's happening in Venezuela today. 
in Cuba was supposed to solve the problems of the abuse of the past and now children don't have milk or even clean water to drink. Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam. You know, in China I've talked to people whose parents ate other dead bodies because of communism and what it caused in the 1960s. They don't solve the problem. But then we look back and we say, well, yeah, communism, what a horrible thing, and it is. But we also try the other side. We try to think it's hard work, and if we're good capitalists, problems will be solved because everybody will get rich, and the rising tide raises all the boats and all of that. But that doesn't solve the problem of the soul either. That might be better economically, but it surely is not better for the soul. There's no lasting peace with God with money. In fact, when people start making money, they become more and more greedy and abusive of others. That didn't solve the problem. Only the good news of Jesus Christ that he received, that man understood his sin, and man understood that Jesus needed to die for his sin, and man understood his lack of obedience, and Christ had to obey in his place. That's the basis of man's true peace with God. That's when we stand up before God in that judgment day. We'll be able to say, I'm clear, Lord. Someone lived and died for me. Fourth lesson. The gospel is not excellent speech. It's not deep wisdom. It's not personal magnetism. It's not earnestness. It's not even sincere prayer. I've often talked about, I wish I could speak like Joel Austin. No, not what he says, but how he says it. Such a remarkable character, the way he talks and his illustration and his enunciation. And people are drawn to him because he is... You talk about personal magnetism. People pay to go and hear this man preach. But he wouldn't know the gospel if it hit him in the face. And that's the problem. Or sometimes we have deep philosophical wisdom and you hear someone talk and say, wow, he is so bright. Or even earnestness. You know, Hinduism prides itself on being earnest, sincere, deep. So you can take anything and make it into God as long as you're sincere that you're sacrificing yourself. Or some people would say, I, I pray all the time. And you say, are you a member of the church? No. But I pray I'm religious. None of those things says none of them. Only the gospel. That looked kind of ugly. Kind of embarrassing. Because the leader died in such a cruel. And a painful and shameful way. The gospel is this. Jesus died for sinners. He was buried and he rose again. From the dead for them. Now that's the gospel. Second point, if you embrace the gospel, it will save you. Verse 17, for in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And that's why it concludes, the just shall live by faith. Apostle Paul stated that those who embrace the gospel by faith are saved by the gospel. God gives faith to the sinner to receive what Jesus did. Of himself he would reject what Jesus did. It wouldn't make sense to him. But by faith he internalizes what Jesus did. And the spirit works through that word to save him. How did that happen? 
Well, God declares the non-believer righteous. When he counts the righteousness of Jesus, his life of obedience, and his sacrificial death as the sinner's. It is as if the non-believer perfectly obeyed God's law and died for his own sins, though it was Jesus who did this for him. Romans 3.26 says, To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we are justified when we have faith in Jesus. It's kind of interesting too that God used the word righteousness as a name for Jesus. This righteousness is revealed and he showed man his sin and the greatness of his demands and then the righteousness of Jesus was put to his account. How do we see this about Jesus? How do we know that this was a specific means of righteousness? Well, we'd have to go back to the book of Daniel. Well, there are many examples. I'll give you one. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24, we hear these words. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. You would say 70 would be 70 times 7 day weeks. So it would be 490 years from that time. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. What was that speaking of? Who was that righteousness, that everlasting righteousness? That was Jesus Christ. He made an end to sin by taking the punishment for sin. He took the sting out of sin, which was death. Death no longer. We never have to worry about sin anymore. Because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He was the righteousness of God. So the language there is so beautiful. And when he says this is from faith to faith, he meant this is the same continuous faith that will keep you from beginning to end. This is the faith that brings you to Christ. This is the faith that leads you in Christ. And that's where this phrase comes from. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright, but the just shall live by faith. By the way, you know when people say in the Old Testament they were saved by keeping the law? Well, they didn't read Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 that says the just shall live by faith. Ignore Deuteronomy that said God is not looking for the circumcision of the body, but it's a circumcision of the heart. The internal work that God would do inside. And isn't it beautiful that this was really the revival of this doctrine that caused the Reformation? For many years, the Roman Catholic Church taught that you were saved by grace, but mostly by your works, leading many men to hell. And because of this teaching, the Roman Catholics revived that old doctrine of purgatory, saying, well, you can go to purgatory, you're not going to go without sin, because people knew they were sinful when they died, but when you go into purgatory, you'll be cleaned up. That's the word purg or purge, purgatory, purgatory. That you'll be cleaned out of your sins. And then you'll be translated to heaven. How wrong they were. Because the Bible says after death comes the judgment. And even the earliest church fathers said this. You know the Roman Catholics would say. This doctrine of justification by faith. That's just the, the, the Reformation people came up with that in the 1500s. But Clement of Alexandria. One of the earliest church fathers. 
taught that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. And when the Bible uses this term, shall live, it's a special term. It means the person will live perpetually forever. This means, brothers and sisters, there's no other way of salvation. No faith in Christ, no salvation ever. The Jews needed faith. The Gentiles needed faith. The old need faith. The young need faith. Man needs faith. Woman needs faith. You need faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, the only means by which you are saved. Saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. What can we learn? Four more Four more lessons. One of all, first of all, God demands humility. You must see your need for salvation and your hopelessness without it. You have no righteousness of your own. There's nothing you can offer to God and say, here. Every other religion tells you you can do things to please God. The Muslims say you have your uh, special duties. As long as you fulfill them, you go to Mecca, you, you fast, you give zakat at the end of uh, Ramadan, and you do these, pray so many times a day, you're all good. Hindus, as long as you're sincere, you can take God and make anything of God, and you'll be okay. And even many churches sort of make a bridge between a, a, like a joint venture between man and God for salvation and by the way this is one of the reasons the reformed faith is despised so much because it tells you there's absolutely nothing you can do for your salvation but simply receive what Jesus did look at the churches that are being persecuted overseas look at what's happening in China the early reign covenant church is the one that's being attacked more than any other because it speaks of something completely different. Total dependence upon God. Now, consider what's happening in our young people today. They're being drilled with arrogance, self-importance, self-love. And it's influenced their hearts. And by the way, this is where you know the devil is quite a genius. He makes people feel good about their false doctrine. That you are being told, and I've heard preachers stand up in the pulpit and say, there are three kinds of love in the Bible. That's devilish. Love of self is never commanded. It, love of self is understood as sin. That's why Jesus said, love one another as you love yourself, because he knew how much you love yourself. There's never a command to love yourself. Law 1 through 4, love God. Law 5 through 10, love your neighbor. This really sets young people up though. To fail. And really to spend eternity in hell. Because there's no humility. They tell God what he wants. They tell God how he is to be worshipped. This is one of the problems with those who have a false view of baptism. They want to say. I am going to decide whether to be baptized instead of saying, I'm submitting to God, baptizing me. God calls me. God marks me. By the way, that's why the baptism of children is so important. It's God's call. God claims those children. It's not that child deciding when he wants to be baptized. It's God saying, you have faith, you have children, I will mark them. 
So secondly, start training your children now. Talk about their sin from in infancy. And by the way, you know, sometimes you'd hear a, mo a mother say, Mommy doesn't like that. There's nothing intrinsically wrong about that, but you should go with your big argument. God doesn't like that. That's against God's law. You know why? Because mommy sins too. She's not the absolute standard in this. Or when you do something well, just say, instead of saying, mommy really likes that, start with God likes when you obey that way. Go with your big arguments so they understand this is about what God likes. That's the gospel. Third, salvation is exclusively through Christ. If you do penance or make pilgrimages or particular prayers, they will not save you. The just ones live because they have a justifier, Jesus Christ. And by the way, you see the need for evangelism here? This is why they need to hear about the message of Jesus Christ. And four, you must live then like the righteous ones of God. The ones who have been declared righteous and cleared of their sins. Romans chapter 6 verse 13 says, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What you think, what you do, what you say must reflect what's in you, that you've been declared righteous, a child of God. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? I know sometimes this is overwhelming. Well, I should say back up. This is overwhelmingly used to show that you shouldn't get married to non-believers. But that's just one part. If you have close friendship with people who are wicked, that's a violation of this uh, command here. Because you will start acting like they act. Start thinking and talking like they act. It's watching the friends that you have and avoiding those who are wicked, those who are people of darkness. It doesn't mean you don't talk to others who are not Christians, but you must always have their salvation in mind. But to be close with those who are wicked, they'll influence you because that's the nature. Now, if you, you must embrace the gospel. That's the first call. It doesn't look good, but it's necessary. It's the only means by which we're saved. And if you do embrace the gospel, you're guaranteed 100% you're saved. But if you don't embrace the gospel, it will condemn you. One of the popular means of evangelism I studied many years ago was done by James Kennedy, a PCA minister in Fort Lauderdale. But one of the things they would say there, they would use something called evangelism explosion. And they would say, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, do you think you'll go to heaven? And then if the person says, yeah, and he said, then the follow-up question would be, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And then you start to evangelize from that. But having used that, what if someone said, well, I don't want to go to heaven? Your whole evangelism gets tossed aside. Now, that's great for a conversation starter. But if someone says, well, I don't want to go to heaven, what do you do? See, it's not simply a reward. There's the other side. If you reject this, you die and spend eternity in hell. It's not a neutral position. 
So the Apostle Paul declared that those who don't embrace the gospel will have God's wrath revealed from heaven against him. How severe will this judgment be? Well, the key is there, God uses the word wrath. It's not a spanking like God would spank a child or you would spank a child. Wrath describes eternal damnation. It's not capital punishment. And the fact is, we don't die and disappear like uh, evolutionists teach. You face God's judgment. Judgment comes from heaven. We have some examples of that. For example, in Genesis 19, uh, verse 24, the Lord rained brimstone and fire from Sodom and Gomorrah and the Lord, from the Lord out of the heavens. Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living one and the everlasting king. And then his wrath at his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Ultimately, Jesus said, they'll be cast into the lake of fire where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth and their worm would not die. That's the worm of the conscience and that's worse than the fires of hell would be the guilt that you heard the gospel, that you rejected the gospel. See what's missing from evangelism explosion? Is the condemnation of God. You reject it. At your own destruction. And that's what the apostle Paul went into. Those who reject it. They will experience God's wrath. These men were ungodly and unrighteous. Uh, referring. That those two terms are uniquely different. They refer to the rejection of the first table of the law, one through four, on godliness and unrighteousness is usually used to describe the second table of the law, law five through ten. These men rejected the gospel and take note of the next word if you have your Bible open, they suppress the truth. This word, suppress the truth, is used in a unique way. It's like when you, uh, you're probably very sanctified people, you've probably never seen this, but when someone holds someone down on the ground so someone can pound on them, that's the picture here. Or someone is put in a box and it's nailed shut and they sit on it, that's squeezing you down. There's no way to get up. And that's what these people do with the truth. So they have to find new ways of suppressing, of crushing the truth. But no one was able to escape who was unholy, unrighteous, and suppressed the truth and did not have the righteousness of Christ counted as theirs. These are the people who rejected the light of the gospel. You see, holding the truth captive is an attack. It's a personal attack against God because the law of God reflects God. It reflects what is good. And by the way, this is working against their own self-interest because God's law is liberating. Psalm 19, the law of God is good. It endures forever. It's sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. It's more to be desired than gold and fine gold. That is God's law. It gives freedom. I talked about this with someone recently. And we think of, uh, we're looking at the seventh law and talking about adultery. You say you stick within the confines of God's law. There's nothing safer and more joyful. And all the risks and deadliness outside of God's law. That's what comes. God's law is liberating and freeing. 
but those who reject it. Remember Psalm 2. We sing it. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way. You don't embrace the salvation. That one who died in that embarrassing way on the cross. Then he will destroy you. It's not neutrality. It's life or death. Four more lessons on this final point. First of all, you're taught in society that as long as you're sincere about what you do, God will be pleased with you. You have your way, I have mine, and we just are nice to each other. Politeness. That's the Canadian, new Canadian God. And in society will declare you to be a good person. Yeah, he's a Mormon, but he is good. Yes, he's Roman Catholic, but... He always picks up his garbage cans and keeps his grass cut. He, he is Muslim, but, uh, and he goes to the mosque regularly. And, but we never see him screaming or blowing up anything. He just, it's okay. It's nice to have him there. How the devil must love that doctrine. People feel religious, so they pat themselves on the back. And think everything is okay. Now I was in Greece recently. And 95% of the people claim to be Christians. What a godless place. 95, and those are the Eastern Orthodox Christians. Or like the, they like to say Christian Orthodox. And then maybe a couple percent are evangelicals. So almost everyone there claims to be Christian. Who thinks anywhere that that is the case? But they feel religious and they pat themselves on the back. And they think everything is okay. They give money. They're very good at giving money to the church. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 3 says this. For when they say peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape seems like everything's okay and that's where the danger comes sudden destruction second what do you say to others who sincerely believe that killing those who don't follow their religion or criticize their beliefs what about those who promise that their political system will bring Utopia. Can they? Have they? Any of these things worked? They brought nothing more than judgment. Third, some know the truth, the real truth, but they suppress the truth. And I bring this one in because uh, it applies especially to our churches. Because sometimes the young people, they're baptized as kids and they're raised in the church. and um, They just take for granted, I've got my ticket to heaven. They really don't accept the fact that they have to trust in Jesus Christ. They have to receive by faith what Jesus did on the cross. And that they were not saved by their baptism. We might criticize others from the outside, but we need to look at ourselves. You receive the gospel or you die. 
doesn't matter if you're a member of the church. It doesn't matter if you were baptized as a child. Receive the gospel. Or go to hell. And one more. God sends plagues from heaven today on the wicked. And we must not forget that. When we see judgment coming upon those who have turned their backs on God. We shouldn't be surprised. But the ultimate judgment will be hell. It doesn't end when we die. If we reject the gospel, death is the beginning of our suffering in earnest. Let's conclude. Those who are lost in sin must embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. They must embrace the fact that God is holy, that man is sinful, and that Christ came and lived and died on the cross for men's sins. If they receive this gospel, they're saved by it. If they reject this gospel, they're damned by it. There's nothing nuanced here. There's no exception to the rule. It is truth. You receive the truth or death. That's how clean it is. There's no middle ground. There's no purgatory. It's heaven or hell. So, beloved in the Lord Jesus, three closing thoughts. One, learn that you must not be ashamed of the gospel. Yeah, it makes you totally dependent on God, but that's what's essential for you to get the gospel. Rejoice that you have it. You needed it. You didn't know where to look, and you didn't even care to look, even if you knew. But Jesus found you. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, and now I see. Learning that, then love the Lord for the wonderful thing he has done for you. And then third, the gospel must never end with you. But let the world know that he loves all kinds of sinners. He takes them and he cleans them up and he adopts them as his own. Hear this. No one is so nasty that he can't be cleaned up and given a new heart, a new record. And a new life. Don't ever look at someone and say they're too far gone. He's a pervert. He's done this and that and the other. Look at the way he's treated his wife. God can clean up anyone. And it's only the gospel that can do that work. So share the gospel with them. Let them know. And if you have not received the gospel of Jesus... But you hold to some other gospel. Maybe you think socialism will save us. Or capitalism will save us. Or health care or technology will save us. You will find they will all fail you. And you will have to stand before God on judgment day and say. What did you do with the gospel? You didn't like it because it humbled you. You didn't like it because it made you dependent. That was the only hope you have. And then God will say depart from me. Work of wickedness, I've never, I've never known you. Even if you were a member of the church, even if you were baptized, you don't trust in Jesus. But there's always hope. He says, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Receive Christ and live. Reject him and die. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your words. Thank you for a reminder of the necessity of the gospel in our own lives. Sometimes we get kind of comfortable in how we're living and we forget the wonder of the gospel. What you have saved us. So if we are believers. Encourage our hearts today. That we know you. And uh, help us then to also. 
let others know about this, that they will be saved from their sins as they hear the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of truth. And if someone here today, Lord, is outside of your kingdom, maybe hearing this online, that they will hear the message of Jesus and say, yes, I need what I don't have. I need salvation that comes only through Jesus. And that today will be their birthday. Their birthday in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.